Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The man who has drunk poison may say, I will run, I will shun it, but he is too late. You have heard the gospel and can never rid yourself of its everlasting obligations. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled, The Final Warning, and it was preached by Azahel Nettleton. This would have been preached sometime in the early 1800s. Joel, Azahel Nettleton. You you know Azahel Nettleton, right? You've, you've uh, read all his books. Yeah, the good old Nettleton. <laughs> Classic. Everyone. Every, okay, so this is probably somebody you have not heard about. It's somebody I have not heard about, and yet he is hugely and wildly popular. He reminds me of Henry Grattan Guinness. There's these guys in history that were humongous, giant deals. Like if you walked into a church and said, we have Nettleton in church today, everyone would gasp. Like it would be, uh, I mean, I don't even know what it would be the equivalent of today. It'd be the equivalent of your, you know, having John Piper or just somebody really, really big and famous, you know, John MacArthur, John Piper, just these big names that everyone kind of knows. That's what Nettleton was. In fact, Nettleton in some ways would have been considered even bigger than those guys. But most of us have no idea who he is today. Most of us have completely forgotten him. Some of his contemporaries, there were people who lived at the same time as Nettleton who were alive to hear Jonathan Edwards preach. Because he preached, because Nettleton preached in the early 1800s. Edwards died kind of in the mid-1700s. So there were people, you know, if you're 80 or 90, you've heard both of them. And there were people who basically said, I've heard you know, Whitfield, I've heard Edwards, I've heard Nettleton, and they basically all said Nettleton is not Whitfield, but he's as close to Whitfield as anyone's been in a long, long time. And that's as pretty much as high a praise as you can get as a preacher from people, you know, who heard all of them speak. He was highly, highly regarded in his day. And yet, you know, he's just one of those guys that slipped through the crack of history and that we have forgotten. The other thing about Nettleton that we'll get into in a little bit is he's responsible for a very, very, very important part of church history in America. So important that the America we have today would not be, you know, America as we know it if this event hadn't happened. And it directly started with Nettleton. Yeah, Nettleton, he was born in 1783 in a farming town in Connecticut. And this is a a specific time in American history. This is just after we finished the war with Britain, but before the Constitution was written. So it's kind of an in-between, you know, we've won our independence, but we haven't declared the independence uh, formally yet. It's kind of an odd pocket of, uh, of Americana, American history. He was raised in a Christian home, taught, you know, the Bible, taught the verses, uh, and, you know, while he claimed to be a Christian, he had admittedly said that this portion of his life, he was completely nominal in that, you know, he, he said he was a Christian, but um, that's not how he lived his life. He had no evidence of a relationship with the Lord, and, it, you know, as he admits later on in life, uh, he had no intention of, of wanting to live a, a godly lifestyle. Quite the contrary. He was quite the, the partier as a teen, uh, kind of, you know, your stereotypical uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, a party teen, right? All teenagers are the same, right? Dancing, enjoying himself. You know, he loved to, to go out to parties, uh, drink, get into trouble. But in the year 1800, right around the time he was turning 18, he came home from a Thanksgiving celebration, and uh, he reported just not feeling the usual joy, the usual excitement that that gave him. For some reason, he kept thinking about death, and, and that kept coming back to him, and he wanted to know if he would be okay if he were to die. We've talked about this before, but many people today have said it's you know bad to use fear. We had a conversation, a revived conversation, on what's missing in the church today, and we talked about Uh, hell and how this idea of you could go to hell was useful, uh, has always been useful for evangelism, despite the fact that it makes people not feel good. If there's another theme that I think is really important in the history of so many of these uh, people we look at, it's what happens to me if I die? You know, Nettleton is just one of many people that we've covered that they were almost haunted by the idea that if I die, I'm in real trouble and there's no fixing it. 
and Nettleton, it just kind of drove him a little crazy. So he starts to read his Bible, practice good works, attend church. He's doing all these works to be saved, you know, to, to, to earn it, to try to look good. And yet it drove him even more crazy because he realized nothing, this isn't enough. This is not good enough. There's no way I'm going to reach perfection. Then he kind of had this time where he doubted, well, what if the Bible isn't true? And he kind of discarded it and was like, you know what? The Bible's not true, but he couldn't help but shake this feeling. But what if it is true? And if it is true and I'm wrong about it, then when I die, what happens to me? This just constant fear of what will happen to me if I die. This goes on for about 10 months. And finally, what broke him was reading the writings of Jonathan Edwards, specifically the memoir of David Brainerd. If you have ever heard or read about that memoir, it's a really great book. If you haven't, I recommend you read it or go listen to Elise's episode on Mars and Missionaries about David Brainerd to get an idea of what he was going through. But if you listen to it or look at it or read it or whatever, you would see that David Brainerd really struggled with the idea of trying to earn his salvation and trying to be such a good person that he could get to heaven. And finally, David Brainerd just kind of breaks down and just kind of goes, God, I'm not good enough. And that's when God gets him. And Nettleton has a very similar experience where one day he was just wrestling and just despairing over the fact that he could never be good enough. And he said that in his head, he just had this one word, just it felt like it was being like, you know, um, just burned into his head, eternity, eternity, eternity. And after hours of just saying, I'm not good enough to himself, kind of, I can't do it, I'm not. He just suddenly felt calm and peace and relaxed and just, it was different. And he realized, I'm not good enough. I will have to trust in the Lord. And he didn't fully understand what happened, even understand what happened in that moment. But from that point on, he no longer saw the Bible as a scary thing, as this chore, as this thing he had to do. But he suddenly was excited to learn more about God and to start worshiping and learning about the God that he had been so afraid of for so long. And he realized that, you know, he had been converted, that once he fully gave up the idea that he could earn heaven uh, and just trusted in God for it, it was over. And that wrestling match just came, you know, completely to an end. And he started to describe God not as this scary figure that would meet him at death to judge him, but as someone lovely, as someone he couldn't wait to see. There was a pastor in the area that was involved in some revivals that were going on, and Nettleton enjoyed listening to him and, you know, kind of furthering his education in in biblical areas. But a epidemic, a disease swept across his area, and his father and his younger brother ended up dying due to this disease. And so he had to take some time off, stay home, and tend to his family, tend to his mother and his other siblings uh, work on the farm, support his family. Eventually, he was able to stay in school, and with his free time, he still continued the best he could to learn under this pastor. He would eventually enroll at Yale, planning to be a missionary. He felt called to travel and, and share the news of Jesus with, with people that hadn't heard it before, or, or maybe didn't quite understand it. Unlike many in this program, he was not an academic genius, you know, with full honors. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing for when I'm talking about these people in the backstories, I'll often be like, they were a model student. They were they were brilliant. They were, you know, they, they took really well to studies. And uh, that was not him. He, he made it through the courses, but he wasn't a, a genius. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of my time at Bible college. I always say... C's get degrees, you know. You, you, you st <laughs> at the end of the day, you're still you're still uh, going through the experience, learning what you need to learn. Uh, you might not just be, be a, you might not test as well as everyone else. It's okay. <laughs> no, I I mean I, I I kind of was refreshed. I like our smart guys. I like our and by the age of you know 21, he had written a completely new, different understanding of the way to teach Latin or something. But it was nice to read somebody who was like. Look, I got the grades. I paid off the debt. That's, right. I came and did what I was here to do. I'm not. I'm not that guy. Right. Yeah. And he left a good impression on, on doing so. He made a good relationship with the president of Yale, uh, who all, it happened to be Jonathan Edwards's grandson. And Jonathan Edwards' grandson later said that you know he, he recalls thinking that this man would be really useful in ministry. Nettleton worked for a year or so in a backwater part of Connecticut, waiting for the opportunity to be a pastor, waiting for a pastorate call to be put out. And such a call was put out in 1812 for a church in New York. So a little bit of a relocation for him, a little bit of traveling involved. And so he set off to be this pastor in New York, and he decided to do some preaching on the way. You know, he's, he's traveling, he's resting, 
He's visiting churches on the way, and so he's speaking at these churches that he's visiting on the way. You know, guest speaker, you know, we got so-and-so in town. He's going to fill the pulpit today, just serving where he can. Uh, and that led to kind of an, a neat, interesting part of his life, part of his story. It's, part of this next story reminds me, if you have listened to our episode on Christmas Evans that we did not that long ago, there's this famous story where no one expected anything great from Christmas Evans, but almost like a Hallmark, Hallmark movie, he gets up and he blows everyone away. And that that's kind of the feeling I had when I listened to I, when I was going through this one. And by the way, definitely a great episode. You should go listen to any Christmas Evans we put out. But in this moment, there's this kind of powerful moment where the Lord does something through this guy that no one was expecting. This guy had been kind of quietly serving in ministry for years. He was the not not the prodigal. He wasn't the guy that everyone remembered. He was just a very faithful servant. Um, J.C. Ryle is also similar. J.C. Ryle spent 10 years toiling away, preparing for someday, you know, people knowing who he was, but he was in the backwater parts of where he was at that time, and no one knew him for a while. Sometimes these great men of God that you know about were just regular guys. You could have even known them. They could have been the guy of your local church downtown before the Lord put them in a new place. Now, part of what happened next might have been because uh, there was just a kind of a, I don't want to say a season of change, but there was something different happening. And that was the fact that in the year of 1812, famously, America goes to war again with Great Britain in the war of, you know, what we call the War of 1812. America had just lost her first battle in that war. People were kind of on edge. And America was, you know, kind of going through something. They were, again, they're fighting the great empire again. This is a time where people maybe are nervous. So maybe this is why the Lord was moving more specifically. Also, America was up against universalism. On an episode we did on Lemuel Haynes, he talked about just universalists being everywhere. And so maybe the Lord was, was reawakening these people for this reason. But whatever it is, this becomes a very important moment. When this visiting pastor steps into the pulpit and just starts preaching, it's pretty small church uh, he started just asking questions of the congregants, and all the congregants said, I thought he was talking specifically to me. He was asking questions and saying things that felt like they were on my heart. Like I felt like he was talking to me as if someone had whispered into his ear, hey, do you know about you know so-and-so and what they're dealing with? You should preach on that. But everyone was saying at the same time that the Lord was working on each of them that same way. He didn't put an invitation at the end. No, there was no altar calls. He just gave the sermon, encouraged them to think about, you know, eternity in God and walked away. And yet throughout that week, everyone who went home, so many of them ended up becoming Christians. People who thought they were Christians, people who were attending church, ended up becoming Christians that week, wrestling with that sermon. And people, a revival, like a just spun out where people were just deeply impacted and convicted on God. These people would then go on to start Bible studies, to start doing things. Many of them would go on to ministry and they would carry what happened with them on to other churches, going to other churches, telling everyone you wouldn't believe what happened. And this became known as the second great awakening in America. And this moment, this church is the very beginning of that second great awakening. And what happens here will end up lasting for about three decades, not just in America, but in other places will be impacted by it too. And it all started with this one sermon as Nettleton was passing through the area. Yeah, he seemed to have, you know, just from historical accounts, seemed to have a way of explaining things in a way that caused people to see things in a light they hadn't seen before. And it really kind of took hold of, of people. Uh, and like Troy mentioned, a wave of revival would sweep across uh, America here. When Nettleton did arrive at that church in New York that he was supposed to be at, uh, this church was labeled as, as one that was unreachable for the gospel. It had a rough congregation, uh, but yet within weeks of Nettleson showing up, we see the same kind of revival taking place here where people are suddenly only wanting to talk about God and Bible studies were full and people were spending their days at church eager to read, eager to study, uh, eager to learn more about God's word. And Nettleton, you know, he initially wanted to be a missionary and that still, we can see that uh, kind of bleed over into his life now because uh, it, it, it became very difficult to keep him in one spot after this. He only stayed at that church for two months before uh, going to speak at other places as well, almost kind of defaulting back into this uh, traveling evangelist role, right? He wanted to preach and revive and evangelize. So everywhere he went, uh, we see this uh, effect that kind of followed him around. There was one church that was particularly rough, 
had gone through a big split, a big division, and a lot of people wrote it off as a, a lost cause, you know? Churches kind of living and dying and, and going through their cycle, we we, th- we think that's something new in today's day and age, you know? We see a church that kind of putters out and a congregation that thins out and that church goes away. That's not new to our generation. Like, every church has had churches mm-hmm. pop up and thrive and 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 die and this church seemed to be like it was on the on the way out and within a month once again uh, there's a report it it's reported that there were 80 people converted at that church ranging anywhere from 12 to a 70 year old widow over time Nettleton's preaching and revivals uh, would lead a reported 30,000 people to the Lord through his sermons and this was at a time, you know, th- again, this is early America. There's 9 million people in America right now. So 30,000 is a lot more than what we think of uh, today. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good portion of the population pie chart of what is America mm-hmm. at this point. And a lot of that time was just spent in a few northern states. And, you know, we always say we, we could spend a whole lot of time on each individual. We can't cover their entire life, but we wanted to cover a specific conflict that he had with one of the most famous revival evangelists from the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney. Nettleton started hearing that the churches he had worked with and groups of revivals he was kind of in contact with were starting to have trouble. There were these people using what was quote-unquote called the new measures with revivals. If you know much about revivals, this might be what you think of. You know, you're, some people have very strong feelings against or for revivals, and they think of altar calls. They'll think of, like, pressure that you have to come to Christ right on the spot right now. All these kind of things that are revivals are famous or, you know, depending on your perspective, infamous for and this, a lot of this has to do with Finney. Now, Joel, we probably should do a revived conversation or some kind of deep dive on revivals because hmm. I have a lot of thoughts on it. They're, they come up a whole lot uh, in our work. I mean, I can think of so many times where I'm like, and this guy led a revival, Andrew Murray, uh, Azahel Nettleton. I mean, there are so many people throughout Revived Radio, Revived Thoughts, all these different histories that have been affected or affected revivals that it's definitely worth talking about because I think we have a bit of a uh, misunderstanding on them today. And a lot of that comes from the work that Finney caused. Now, when Nettleton went back to find out what was going on, this leader of the New Measures came up to him, and he I won't go into all the details of how this occurred, but eventually Finney, Lyman, Beecher, and Nettleton end up in this big debate. Now, Lyman Beecher is another very famous preacher, and the I want to do an episode on him. The only reason we haven't done an episode on him is because his sermons are like 150 pages long. They're so ridiculously long. I haven't been able to find one that's in a usable length or edit it down to a usable length yet. But he's a very great preacher too. And Nettleton and him ended up against Finney. And they had this kind of big conference, big debate, this big going at each other where Nettleton and and Beecher are pointing out that Finney doesn't believe in the depravity of man. He doesn't believe all men are sinful. And Finney kind of, you know, and he also doesn't believe that revivals are a work of the Holy Spirit through a miracle. And Finney in his own autobiography later on would basically say the same thing. Like, look, there's no nothing miraculous happening during a revival. You're just getting humans to get to a better place where they can choose what they want to do. And he also did say, like, you know, I don't believe men are sinful completely. I don't, you know, I don't believe we're born in original sin. I believe that if given enough opportunities, we can choose the right path. And so the revival he designed was all designed to pressure a person to make the right choice. And that if you were given the right opportunity, you would. This kind of led to a breakaway between these different men. Nettleton's health would end up failing, and he wouldn't end up being able to preach as much, although he would be a professor for a little bit longer. Finney ended up becoming one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening, and this led to a lot of problems for the Second Great Awakening. And one thing is, though, that I think one way to really tell the difference between Nettleton and what God was starting with him and Finney and the end of their work is to look at those moments 20 to 30 years later. People went back to Nettleton's church 20 to 30 years later and said, hey, you know, Nettleton at such and such a town said he had 80 converts. You know, what what happened to them? And remarkably, when they did the survey of Nettleton's churches, they found that, you know, if there were 80 people converted, in some places, all 80 were still living as Christians, still, you know, faithful attenders. In other places, they'd be like, yeah, we lost three, but 75 are still good. You know, they were really incredible how many people were walking with God even decades and decades after Nettleton had left that area. In reverse, Finney 
does not have that same experience. Uh, one of his co-laborers, you know, there's a letter that he wrote to him and basically was like, what are we even doing, Finney? He was like, three months after we leave an area, everyone is back to the way they were before we were there. It was like we never did anything. And B.B. Warfield famously said of Finney that Finney would set these people on fire, but when they went out from the fire, which they always did, they were like coals that could never be started up again. They were the toughest bricks of people to bring back to God after Finney's quote-unquote revivals in those areas. So there's a real difference in the way these two men operated and you can see by the lasting impact they had on those who were actually converted in their ministries. That's not to say that there were no conversions that happened you know, after Nettleton left the scene. That would be inaccurate and incorrect, and he did have an impact. Uh, but it's just to say that what Nettleton was doing was very different, and I think was much more long-lasting and led by the Holy Spirit. At the very beginning, we mentioned that who kind of helped bring Nettleton to Christ was Jonathan Edwards. I think it's really interesting because Edwards is so influential in the First Great Awakening. He's the one who invited Whitfield. He was such a huge part of it. When you think of the First Great Awakening in America, you think of sermon, you know, sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And you can really feel that impact in this sermon we're about to listen to. This this sermon, the final warning, has a little bit of that Edwardsian, uh, you know, you're you know, you really need to be thinking about eternity. And so it's really interesting how on a lot of ways Jonathan Edwards helped influence not just the first great awakening, but through Nettleton he influences the second great awakening too. And just seeing how um, just the faithfulness of these men and being very bold about heaven and hell and eternity had such a humongous influence on the lives of so many Christians. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Proverbs 29.1 A stronger indication of a mind unreconciled to God can hardly be imagined than the unwillingness to receive discipline. The humble man is always grateful for correction, administered in the spirit of meekness and prompted by a sincere desire for the growth of the offender. But the arrogant sinner, whose ways are always right in his own eyes, foolishly rejects it. Here, the reasonable precaution which our Savior addressed to his disciples, Do not give that which is holy for dogs or cast your pearls before swine, unless they trample them under their feet and turn again and tear you. It is not the best policy to rebuke offenders of every description and on all occasions. Prudence and judgment should be exercised in the discharge of this duty. Otherwise, the well-meant endeavors of the man who undertakes the unwelcome task of a policeman will meet with a sad repayment. Few, when faithfully reminded of their offenses, will have the humble attitude of the pious David, who, doubtless in allusion to the pain and pointed comments administered to him by the prophet Nathan, exclaimed, Let the righteous beat me, it will be a kindness, and let him discipline me, it would be an excellent lotion which will not break my head. Most people, on the contrary, when closely challenged as he was, and whose conscience crimes are sent home with a clearness which cannot be mistaken, you are the man will give free vent to their rage instead, and will not care to attack whoever gives the rebuke in the cruel language assigned to the wicked by the psalmist. With our tongues we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? The spirit which is seen in the disdainful heart of individuals of this type, when reminded of their faults, is a striking commentary on the just maxims of the wise man. He that reproves a scorner gets to himself shame, and he that rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blot. And do not reprove a scorner, for he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. This is the difference which marks the demeanor of the righteous and the wicked when reminded of their faults. From the passage which has been selected, it is good to contemplate on a few thoughts. First, the care with which God has taken for the reproof of offenders when it is often administered. God has made it the duty of his people to deal faithfully with each other. Exhort one another daily, unless any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And again, you will not hate your brother in your heart. You will in any wise rebuke your neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. 
and says our Savior, If your brother will trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he will hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he will neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be for you as a heathen man and a tax collector. Brothers, says James, if any do err from the truth and one converts him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and will hide over a multitude of sins. Even further, God has provided for the reproof of offenders by making it the duty of parents toward their children to attend to the spiritual concerns of children and to restrain their wickedness is the most important part of a parent's duty. We have fathers of our flesh, says the apostle, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Most people can adopt his language in relation to their own experience. Yes, and what a load of guilt will rest upon the head of that ungodly child who has despised all the warnings, the entreaties, and tears and prayers of a pious father and an affectionate mother. Spiritual parents who, in anguish, attempt to birth again that soul that Christ might be formed in their souls, the hope of glory, when their own bodies have fallen in the dust. God also reproves sinners by his providence. He sends his judgments abroad on the earth that the inhabitants may learn righteousness. By the pains we feel, we are admonished that we are sinners and warned to flee from the wrath to come. We are admonished by his word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for all good works. All the invitations, commands, threats, and warnings in the Bible are so many admonitions to sinners. Ministers reprove us. Son of man, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning for me. And show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sin. Hear the orders of Paul to Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts will heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will be turned to fables. It seems as if in uttering this prediction, the apostle had an eye upon sinners of our own day. But woe to those ministers who do not feel the weight of this charge, and woe to those wincing hearers who having itching ears that will not endure sound doctrine, heap to themselves teachers that prophesy smooth things and say peace, peace to the wicked, when God has expressly declared that there is no peace for them. Against such preachers and hearers, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke, and all the curses that are written in this book will fall upon them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man will die in his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand, is the warning given by the Lord through the prophet. Mark, the consequence of withholding the warning is the destruction of both the preacher and the hearer. We are similarly rebuked by his spirit, and when he comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit is sent to admonish. His language is, Sinner, where are you going? And what will be the end of your sinful course? Prepare to meet your God. God sometimes rebukes one sinner by the conviction and conversion of another. Here is one who has been your intimate friend and companion, your views and feelings and pursuits and objects of delight, and I might add, your sins too, have been the same. Yesterday he thought and spoke and acted in all respects like yourself. Today he is alarmed at his awful condition. He trembles in view of a judgment to come. Up until now he has been moving merrily along with you side by side, but he dares to follow you no longer. He has quit your company and fled, but why? Oh, he finds himself a sinner. He has a soul to be saved or lost forever. 
This, my hearer, is strong preaching to some of you. When near and dear friends begin to forsake and shun you, it is time for you to begin to look at yourself. This is a silent but solemn warning to you to flee from the wrath to come. When you see or hear of a hardened sinner, alarmed at his awful condition, sight or sound carries with his solemn charge, see the end to which you are coming. Though you may think to hold out, yet you cannot endure long. Your stubborn heart will soon tremble, and all your boasted courage will prove to be mere cowardice. Here you can see the fearful end to which you are fast approaching. You must repent or perish. Second, the effect of this rebuke. He hardens his neck. Allusions are made to the bull which has repeatedly felt the painful yoke. Over time, his neck becomes hardened, and he can bear it without flinching or feeling. The sinner never hears a painful rebuke without it producing some effect. If his heart is not subdued and changed, he becomes altogether more hardened. The child, which is often corrected but not subdued, becomes hardened against rebuke. The sinner, under the afflictive hand of divine providence, is always made better or worse. If sickness and pain and the death of friends do not wean him from the world and drive him to God, they will harden his heart. This is the effect of all the judgments of heaven and of all the calamities and miseries of human life. This is strikingly illustrated in the case of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because punishment against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So despising the riches of divine goodness and patience and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads into repentance, after his hardness and impenitent heart and with a stiff neck, he perseveres in his course of rebellion, treasuring up for himself wrath for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, the awful reckoning that awaits such offenders. It is wholly impossible that a person should be frequently and faithfully admonished for his crime and yet experience no alteration of his condition. His obnoxious pride will be boasted and his conscience seared like a hot iron. The earth which drinks in the rain that comes upon it and brings out herbs to meet the rain by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is ready for cursing, its end is to be burned. On this work the sinner may make rapid advances. He may acquire the faculty of silencing the voice of his conscience, and, with stoic apathy, proudly boast that he is superior to the thunders of Sinai. He may resist the mild accents of mercy, and do harm to the spirit of grace. He may spurn the offers of a bleeding Savior, the darkened heavens, the tearing rocks, and the quaking earth may have no effect on him. To all these he may make himself unmovable. But the day comes that will burn like an oven, then his stiff neck and his stubborn heart will not exempt him from the terrors that will overtake the soul of every guilty criminal that will stand at the judgment seat of God. Third, the consequences of a terrible attitude, sudden and merciless destruction. He that, being often reproved, hardens his neck, will suddenly be destroyed, and that without cure. He will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the doom of the evil sinner. His punishment will have no end, where their worm never dies and their fire is never quenched. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And to cut off from him the last hope of relief in his torments, Abraham added, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf so that they which would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from there. The redemption of the soul is precious, for the soul lives forever, but its destruction is eternal. It is sudden, will suddenly be destroyed. And the psalmist said, How are they brought into desolation, as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net... And as the birds that are caught in a snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, 
when it falls suddenly upon them. When sinners lose their souls, they always lose them unexpectedly, especially those who have been hardened offenders. When they will say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This sentiment is verified in the providence of God. The fact that is common, the fact is common that it has become a proverb. The text itself is the result of a wise observation of the conduct of divine providence. It embodies the wisdom of the ages. So it was with the inhabitants of the old world. They were often reproved by the preaching of Noah and by the strivings of the Spirit, but they hardened their necks and listened to no one. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. They were suddenly destroyed, and that without a cure. So it was with Pharaoh, who was so often reproved by Moses and by the judgments of God. Conscience was aroused, but just as often did he silence her voice and harden his neck. At length he was suddenly drowned and went down quickly into hell. And it was with the inhabitants of Sodom. Righteous Lot warned them of their danger. The very evening before their destruction, the men of Sodom circled the house of Lot around, both old and young, all people from every corner, and Lot went out and reproved them for their wickedness, but they were too far gone to bear it, and they said, Stand back. This unwillingness to take reproof marked them out as ripe for destruction. The same night, Lot went out and delivered his last warning to his sons-in-law. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. And what was the effect of this warning? Why they respond as sinners now respond. He seemed as one that was only joking. So hardened were they that Lot appeared like a fool, and his message like an idle tale. They were not to be frightened by him. They saw no signs of an approaching storm and heard no distant thunder roar. The morning arose as pleasant as ever, and all was peace and safety. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. They were suddenly destroyed, and that without cure. Ah, I think it is enough to give us frightened goosebumps to consider how suddenly the most stupid and hardened sinner in the house may lose his soul. He may, and doubtless will, sleep on until he is awakened by the voice of God. You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. For there is no cure. The sinner who continues to harden his neck under rebuke cannot be saved. He will suddenly be destroyed, and that without cure, because it cannot be prevented. Here is a sinner who will not take rebuke. The question arises, what will be done to prevent this loss of his soul? The answer is nothing. He is marching forward to eternity and to the pit of destruction with a proud heart and a stiff neck, and nothing can stop him in his mad career. Such a sinner must go to destruction, and no methods can prevent it. This is the meaning of our text. There is no remedy. The only remedy which can be applied for the salvation of sinners is the gospel, and this remedy never takes effect without alarming and arousing the guilty conscience. But when warned, to break off his sins, and to flee from the wrath to come, the hardened sinner says, I will not be frightened into heaven. So it was with the old world. Noah, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By his preaching and by his example, he warned the wicked world of the coming flood, but they were not to be frightened. So it was with the inhabitants of Sodom. The preacher applied the most powerful means, the only remedy to prevent their destruction. Up, get out of this place, for I will destroy the city. But they were not frightened. He seemed as one that mocked. They would not be alarmed, and so there was no cure. What more could the preacher do? Nothing. Sinner, if you cannot be alarmed, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe that you are under the sentence of death from God's holy law, then you do not feel the need of pardon, and you will not come to Christ that you might find life. He that does not believe is condemned already, and the wrath of God abides on him. The sinner who does not feel the awful conviction of this truth cannot be pardoned or saved. The language of the gospel is, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
but no sinner ever repented without conviction of sin. Even the Spirit of God never attempts to rescue the sinner from destruction in any other way than by arousing his guilty conscience to perform its duty. His genuine effects on the heart are described, and when he comes he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. But you are not to be frightened. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and exclaimed, Men and brethren, what will we do? But you are not to be frightened. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. But you are not to be frightened. The sinner who talks in this way is either an infidel or ignorant of the commands of the Bible. For such a sinner, with such views and such feelings, the gospel contains no cure. To such a sinner, the Spirit of God offers no remedy. He, that being often reproved, hardens his neck, will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The sinner who will not take reproof must be destroyed. The physician, who has exhausted his skill and tried every experiment upon his patient, can only look on and see him die. So it goes with the unchanged sinner. You may soothe him in his sins. You may flatter his vanity. But this is only hurrying the work of destruction. The only application is conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. But this his proud heart will not endure. Every attempt to rescue him from destruction will be resisted. It will only exasperate. He that reproves a scorner gets for himself shame, and he that rebukes a wicked man gets for himself a blot. Therefore, says the wise man, do not reprove a sinner lest he hate you. But if this is the effect of reproof, I think I hear someone say, then I will not hear the gospel. I will shun all reproof. Answer, a resolution not to take reproof proclaims yourself to be one of the very persons described in the text. Whoever objects in this manner shows his determination to harden his neck at all cost. For no one can shun reproof or a preached gospel without hardening his neck in the most effective manner. He voluntarily places himself beyond the reach of hope. The man who has drunk poison may say, I will run, I will shun it, but he is too late. You have heard the gospel and can never rid yourself of its everlasting obligations. If they do not escape who refused him that spoke on earth, how much more will we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? They would hear none of my counsel, they despised all of my reproof. Therefore they will eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices, for the turning away of the simple will slay them. From this subject we make the following reflections. Reflection 1. The equity of the sinner's punishment. He hardens his neck against reproof and brings destruction on himself. When the Spirit of God comes and with a still small voice whispers conviction to his guilty conscience, and he feels some concern for his soul, he tries not to be alarmed but to appear above it. He shuns the light of divine truth. He loves darkness. And now he will have enough darkness. God says, Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see. The sinner says, Peace and safety, leave us alone. God says, He is joined to idols, leave him alone. The sinner says, Go your way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. God says, I go my way. My spirit will no longer strive with you. The sinner chooses not to be under conviction. And now suppose God's choice and the sinner's choice should happen to coincide. All I can see, all can see the equity of the sinner's punishment. If he will not lay up treasures in heaven, then he must lay up treasures in hell. This is done by hardening his own heart. After his hardness and impenitent heart, man treasures up for himself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When sinners are lost, their consciences will forever reprove them for destroying themselves. They are made to eat the fruit of their own ways and are filled with their own devices. They utterly perish in their own corruption. By hardening his neck, the sinner, with his own hand, closes the door of heaven against himself. Reflection 2 
Our subject is full of alarms to the aged sinner. My aged fathers, how long have you lived without God in the world? How many warnings have you heard and forgotten? You have lived so many years and have heard so many warnings and have forgotten them all. I now appeal to your own experience. Don't you find that the longer you live, the harder your heart is? Can't you bear testimony to the truth of our text? Where are you now? Once you enjoyed a season of youth, but it is over and gone forever. Your sun is almost down. I address you on the very brink of the grave. You are just ready to launch into eternity. And if you are not suddenly saved, you will be suddenly destroyed in that without remedy. You now live in an interesting crisis, the season of a revival. It has an important bearing on the age in this congregation. Oh, how many younger than yourselves have hopefully entered the kingdom of God before you. In this you have often been reproved. And are you still out of Christ? Your case is becoming more and more hopeless. The probability, oh fear, is a thousand to one that you will be lost. You have no prospect of witnessing another revival in your day. Let the present season slip, and where are you? This very warning, if neglected, will render your case more hopeless still. Reflection 3 Our subject contains a warning to the young. If he that is often reproved hardens his neck, will suddenly be destroyed, then beware how you feel and how you conduct yourself under reproof. How often have you been reproved by preaching, by conversation, by the conviction and conversion of your companions, and by the admonition of conscience, and by the voice of the Holy Spirit? How is this revival season likely to leave you? Certainly not as it found you. If you do not profit from all these warnings, you will be seven times harder than when it started. What improvement have you made of all the warnings you have heard? Where are you now? If my preaching does not prove an aroma of life, it will be an aroma of death to your souls. Every warning you neglect is making your salvation less and less probable. It is making the work of repentance more and more difficult. You are wandering farther and farther from God and plunging deeper and deeper into misery at every step which you advance. With your own hands you are now forging these chains which will bind you down in darkness and despair. To you the Savior calls, Turn you, turn you at my reproof. Because I have called and you have refused, I stretched out my hand and no one listened. But you have counted as nothing all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. So I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a tornado. When distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will seek me eagerly, but they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would listen to none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, they will eat the fruit of their own ways and be filled with their own devices. Today, today then, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Reflection 4 The more stupid and hardened the sinner, the nearer to destruction he is. So it was with the inhabitants of the old world, They never were more thoughtless than before the flood came. It came when they least expected it. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Never was Sodom more stupid than the very night before it was destroyed. The preaching of Lot seemed like a fairy tale. They were doubtless making themselves merry with it until the very moment when the flames of hell took hold of them. So it was with the rich fool. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so it has been with all who have gone to hell from under the light of the gospel. They cried, peace and safety, until they were lost. Death came too soon, and they dropped into hell as into a snare, and it closed suddenly upon them. Those sinners are commonly the nearest to destruction who think and care the least about it. Hell is truth learned too late. Stop, poor sinner. Stop and think. The final warning is just that, right? It's a warning. It is a sermon telling you, hey, 
you need to get right with God. You need to know what it is you believe. There is an end to all these things coming. I think as Christians, we often shy away from that. We don't like to talk about that aspect of things like, hey, life won't go on this way forever. Eventually, this all comes to an end. And if you don't hear that warning, if you don't wake up to the fact that someday this is this world is going to end and you have eternity on the scales, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. I think that scares us. I, to be honest, you know, it is a scary thought that, yes, the Lord is coming back. And even though to many of us, it will be a son coming home to their father. For many people, that's it. That's all they wrote. That's the end of their chances with God. And yet Nettleton was able to, you know, start an entire revival because he was faithful to that message of reminding people that judgment, the warnings, there is a heaven and hell, these aspects of the faith that I think too often we modern Christians are scared to preach and teach and share upon are the very aspects of the building blocks of the faith that bring revival so often because people need to, like Nettleton did, wrestle with the idea of what will happen to me after I die? What will happen to me after this world ends? And so I encourage you, if you are in ministry, if you know people, if you're shy and away, if you're scared to talk about these parts of the faith, be bold about them because these are usually the parts of the faith that have in some ways the greatest impact on people's spiritual walk with God. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Josiah Kerrigan. Josiah lives in Washington State and is married with four kids. He is active in student ministry at his church and worked as a missionary overseas in Africa before that. He's also a teacher. Troy, we need some more five-star reviews on iTunes, don't we? We do. So I got to be honest with you guys, just purely playing my playing my cards on the table my wife of Elise of Martyrs and Missionaries on a pretty regular basis has pointed out that she's getting all these wonderful written Apple podcast reviews. We over here at Revive Thoughts get a lot of reviews, but they're usually just people leaving us five stars. And so she has a real edge on us. And, and I'm not saying she gloats, but she definitely does. So if you don't mind, you can be a fan of both shows. We hope you read reviews for both shows. But if you can go leave one for Revive Thoughts, go leave us a little written review because we haven't had a written review in, in quite a long time. And, and it's starting to show, you know, I'm starting to lose face here in the arguments and the back and forth. Not, not again, not, don't even worry about the social media pressure. Do it so that I can look my wife in the eyes and be like, look, we got ourselves a little written review here. That would really help. We'd really appreciate that. We read all of them that are ever there. They, we, we take them advice. Even some people give us advice through them. I always would recommend you send us an email instead because those reviews last forever. But please send us some reviews and, and we would really appreciate it. And it does help other people find our show. It helps let Apple Podcasts know to put our show up in people's feeds and algorithms and stuff like that. So it does help out. And it can be a big uh, deal when working with, um, cooperating with others too. So please uh, go leave us a five-star review. We would really appreciate it. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Mm-hmm.